Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. What we're mostly going to be talking about today, it's really a news episode, we're going to be talking about progress on a post-coronavirus green stimulus as we discussed in the last episode. So there's a few different news stories on this that I wanted to deal with which touch on this topic. First off, following on from the last episode, this idea of green stimulus post-coronavirus. So Fatih Bairol, who is the uh, International Energy Agency, a chief economist there, was quoted in The Guardian on this issue. Unfortunately, the newspaper went with the headline, World has six months to avert climate crisis, which I've seen a few people post already. I wish people would stop with these misleading and simplistic deadlines, because this really doesn't communicate that much. Some headline more like, Green Stimulus Urgently Needed as Part of COVID-19 Economic Recovery, or Green Stimulus Would Create Jobs and Avert Climate Catastrophe, or even Global Green New Deal Required to Prevent Climate Crisis, something like that, would be far more truthful accurate and communicative than making up another arbitrary false deadline. I really feel like these deadlines don't work, but maybe that's just me. Anyway, as someone who's written articles, I know that the headline is often written by someone else, and it's unfortunate that most people end up only reading the headline. To the substance then, what he actually said was the following. He said, quote, This year is the last time we have if we're not to see a carbon rebound. The next three years will determine the course of the next 30 years and beyond. If we do not take action, we will surely see a rebound in emissions. If emissions do rebound, it's very difficult to see how they will be brought down in the future. This is why we're urging governments to have sustainable recovery packages. The point is here, according to the IEA, global governments are likely to go for a big Keynesian stimulus package, investing in new projects and bailouts that aim to restart the economy in the wake of the damage caused by the coronavirus pandemic. The IEA estimates that the total value of these stimulus packages in the next few months will be $9 trillion. The stimulus packages created this year will determine the shape of the global economy for the next three or four years, according to Byroll, and within that time emissions must start to fall sharply and permanently, or we can say goodbye to the 1.5c temperature target in the Paris Agreement, which in my view is already extremely unlikely to happen, but uh, that, that's, that's my view. The issue is that the type of stimulus that governments typically like to enact is shovel-ready infrastructure projects. Everyone remembers the examples from the New Deal in the US. Back then, the Public Works Administration spent billions building roads, schools, airports, power stations. And it did help kickstart the US economy out of the Great Depression, but it potentially also laid the framework for substantially higher emissions in the years to come. If you choose to spend money on airports, you're going to lock in people using planes. If you spend money on roads, you're going to encourage private car ownership, people living far outside of cities and suburbs that have to drive to work. And if those cars are fossil fueled, then you'll lock that in too. And of course, there are direct CO2 emissions from big construction projects, not least where cement is involved. The production of cement itself is uh, responsible for about 7% of global CO2 emissions, I think. And particularly when uh, large industrializations are taking place, it can be quite an important factor. And it's very difficult to uh, remove carbon from that process because of how cement is made. So you can foresee a bit of a nightmare scenario where governments focus on what they think of as these classic big infrastructure projects, building roads, bridges and fossil fuel power plants, and letting climate policy take a back seat. In the meantime, due to the huge economic hit and debts that governments have taken on to try and deal with the immediate crisis, uh, fiscal hawks might show up and argue that the government can't afford to invest in things like research and development or climate-related projects, and this would obviously be a disaster that would lock us into higher carbon emissions for many years to come. Now, the IEA does paint a much rosier picture of what the stimulus could be like if we chose to put climate change priorities at the centre of it. And they estimate that doing so could create more than 9 million new jobs a year. 
They think about 2 million of these would be in retrofitting houses and buildings to be more energy efficient, which would cut the carbon emissions that are related to how we heat and cool buildings. I have to say, for me, this is such a no-brainer. You would employ millions of people to make homes more energy efficient, so you've created jobs in the midst of a crisis. Not only does that get you closer to your climate goals, but it also reduces the energy bills of those same people, so it's like a direct stimulus to them. They have more disposable income to spend, invest, save, pay off debts, whatever. You can imagine a programme where this is done progressively, so that the fraction that the government pays for depends on how wealthy the homeowner is. The government can even recoup on its investment by freezing the bills for a number of years, should it choose to do so. So effectively, you would agree to pay the same bills as you do now, even though you're actually consuming less energy, and the difference goes to the government. Because many of these energy efficiency measures, effectively, they do pay for themselves after a few years. Meanwhile, the fact that we're using energy and electricity more efficiently frees up some capacity to electrify heating and transport. The only people who would not benefit from this plan are the fossil fuel companies and possibly some of the energy companies, which is probably why it isn't happening. Some people profit from the fact that we waste so much of our energy because all they care about maximising is the overall demand, regardless of whether it's actually put to any useful uses or not. They also say that of this 9 million new jobs a year, you could get 1.1 million installing new wind and solar power plants. Improving power networks, for example, greater connectivity projects between regions and between countries, that could provide half a million jobs worldwide, they think. Given that a country like the UK, to hit its target of net zero emissions, may end up having to use four times as much electricity as it does today, after electrifying the transport and heating industries. I mean, this is the type of project that if you're really serious about getting to zero emissions by 2050, fulfilling the goals of the Paris Agreement, you have to be thinking about, okay, how can I start building now the network that is going to carry four times as much electricity, uh, some of it generated renewably, all around the country, you know, in the next few decades? Because these infrastructure projects, they tend to have a lifetime that is on the order of decades. So you have to build it now for it to be ready in time. In some countries where the energy demand continues to rise, expanding electricity networks avoids huge amounts of carbon emissions by ensuring that people can actually use electricity to do things, rather than high carbon fossil fuels and alternatives. The electric car industry, new energy efficient appliances and modes of transportation, energy efficiency in industry and so on, uh, can each offer over half a million jobs a year in the IEA's reckoning for the green recovery. Further backing for this comes from the uh, rather millennialist point from the Grantham Institute in LSE via Sam Fankhauser. He points out that the economic disruption caused by COVID could well kill off some obsolete industries, and governments, instead of propping up old industries, should focus on helping people transition into new ones. He says that we can't just let the economy uh, be put into formaldehyde and remain the same. Instead, we need to realise that propping up old industries is not a great idea. The fact is that opposing economics is always extremely difficult because pretty much every political and corporate force is driving towards doing what is economically profitable. So let me give you an example. In the five years from 2009 to 2014, when Obama was president in the US, coal production of electricity fell by about 14%. In the two years, 2017 to 2019, coal's electricity production in the US fell by 22%. This despite Trump saying that he wanted to save the jobs of coal miners and generally relaxing uh, any environmental restrictions that were in place insofar as he possibly could. So coal is dying in the US rapidly and it's dying due to market forces, which political intervention is finding very difficult to curtail, much as Trump might like to. 
And much as Obama wanted to drive down coal production of electricity, he couldn't do it as quickly as we can now that the market forces are even more in favour of renewables than they were in 2009. Now, this doesn't mean that climate policy is powerless. Climate policies enacted throughout the world are what has made renewables so cheap that they can drive coal out of business. And we'll do an episode on this someday. I think this story really still doesn't get enough attention. But it does mean that when more coal-fired power plants struggle to make money in this COVID recession, but it does mean that when more coal-fired power plants struggle to make money in this COVID recession, governments shouldn't be afraid to let them close and focus on helping those workers into new modes of employment. This is something that unfortunately governments have historically been very bad at doing. There are still whole communities in my country that were former coal mining communities where uh, you know rates of unemployment and, and poverty are still much higher than they would have been in the days of coal mining. So this is the vision of what we could have a green recovery. But what's actually happening so far? Well, according to The Guardian, so far they say, quote, at least $33 billion has been directed towards airlines with few or no green strings attached, according to the campaigning group Transport and Environment. According to analyst company Bloomberg New Energy Finance, more than half a trillion dollars worldwide, $509 billion, they say, is to be poured into high carbon industries with no conditions to ensure that they reduce their carbon output. Only $12.3 billion of the spending announced late last month was set to go towards low-carbon industries, and a further $18.5 billion into high-carbon industries providing they achieve climate targets. Now, you can make an argument that some of this seems fair enough, because the first wave of stimulus has really been a panicked emergency response that aims to prevent total economic collapse in light of the shutdowns, and therefore it hasn't really taken into account what type of economy we would like to see in the future. It's been this process of trying to uh, preserve as much of what exists at the moment as possible. The uh, old world is, is struggling with this coronavirus crisis, and it's trying to preserve itself insofar as it can. But the real challenge for green stimulus starts now, and these investments already, I think, should prove to be a marker. If we can pump $33 billion into the airline industry worldwide, but we can't do the same for energy efficiency, then our priorities here are seriously out of whack. Another excellent outlet for looking at climate-related journalism is Carbon Brief, and they've launched a tracker which is going to try and keep track of all of the green stimulus plans that are being enacted or announced by governments as part of the COVID recovery. So what have they found so far? Well, globally, if you take into account all of the responses to the crisis, government stimuli for the economy has already reached $15 trillion and counting by early May, according to Reuters. In early June, Bloomberg put it at $12 trillion, of which it said less than 0.2% had been targeted towards any kind of climate priorities. So the focus is on preserving existing industries almost entirely. And there's a huge amount of government debt that's just going out there without any sort of major focus on equity, on climate, on anything. It, it, it is an emergency response. So you have to give people some, uh, some leeway on that. But it's certainly not the case so far that any of this is being done in a way that has any sort of environmental uh, policy in mind. Of the countries that have announced policies, we see South Korea has announced a green digital new deal which will invest around $10 billion by 2022. This includes a proposed $4.5 billion for solar, wind and hydrogen infrastructure, research and smart grids, and another $5 billion for buildings that will, starting with government-owned buildings, invest in green energy efficiency and replacements for heating and air conditioning that might be electric. Now, the European Union has proposals to do similar that haven't been enacted yet. Uh, there would be $3 billion for public transport, 17 for agriculture, and 37 for a just transition fund that would help workers move into low-carbon jobs from high-carbon industries. 
and perhaps predictably Germany has the most comprehensive stimulus package of all. According to Carbon Brief, in early June the coalition government of Germany agreed to a stimulus package worth $150 billion. Packages divided into three pillars, one of which is called Invest in a Future-Friendly Germany, and that is allocated around $56 billion, uh, some 38% of the total. Now this is strong but not exclusive focus for this pillar on energy transition and sustainable mobility, so electrifying the transport system. One notable feature is that they're going to spend 9 billion euros for the development of hydrogen, particularly renewable hydrogen. The German research ministry says that green hydrogen made from renewable energy is tomorrow's oil and will be indispensable from the energy transition. So given that that's all going to go through now, you would think that's quite a big bet by the Germans on green hydrogen. Uh, Despite lobbying from some German states and industry, the package only includes extra subsidies for hybrid and electric vehicles, extending an existing scheme uh, under which most support has gone to hybrids. Um, Petrol and diesel cars are excluded, so some have called internal combustion engines the big loser of this agreement. Bloomberg has called the package the world's greenest stimulus plan and said that 30% of it will go to activities that cut emissions. So it's good to see that, at least in Merkel, there is a world leader with the vision to do what's necessary and do so rapidly. Hopefully other world leaders follow suit and get the message, although I'm not exactly holding my breath when I look at some of the people who are in charge. Now, we talk about the stimulus package, and they're saying that petrol and diesel cars are excluded and combustion engines might be the big loser. The thing that you have to understand here is that the bare minimum that developed countries can do if they want to abide by the Paris Agreement, is to get to net zero by 2050. If you want to get to net zero by 2050, you have to think to yourself, well, people own a car for 7, 8, 9, 10 years. You can't be selling any more internal combustion engines by 2040. So you have to question, what is the purpose of helping this industry if you believe and your policy aims are for that industry to essentially have entirely transitioned to become an electric industry in 20 years. 20 years is not a long time. 20 years is not a long time for the the electricity vehicle fraction to go up from a few percentage to 100%, and yet that's what has to happen in the developed world for us to meet these climate goals. So you can call them a big loser and you can say, oh, they've, they've lost out on this and it's terrible for the automobile industry. What we should be focusing on is helping people in the automobile industry get into electric vehicles, get into hybrids, get into something that they're going to be able to sell 20 years down the line. Either that or you're effectively tacitly admitting that you're not planning to keep to your emissions targets at all. Now, I've said that only Germany and to a lesser extent South Korea and perhaps later the EU have policies so far. It's still early days. We're hoping to see some more. And even if there aren't major climate policies... I wouldn't expect to see everyone suddenly go all in on fossil fuels. Particularly in the West, fossil fuel expansion in the power sector is dead. A recent analysis of US power plant development suggested there are 50 gigawatts of renewable power plants that are almost certain to open in the next few years, and just 2 gigawatts of fossil fuel power plants that can say the same. So 25 times as much in the US, which doesn't even have a particularly uh, progressive government on these issues at the moment. It would be foolish beyond belief to prop up a dying industry like that for another two or three years, only for it to eventually fail anyway. Instead of wasting that money and wasting the time of the employees in this industry, they could be set to work retraining and doing work that's both economically productive, more stable long-term in terms of employment, 
and better for the environment, better for the climate. We know what we need to do. All that's needed is the vision to do this and the will to make it happen. But what I'm afraid of is that old parochial attitudes that somehow solving climate change is simply too expensive or shouldn't be a priority or somehow detracts from economic growth or is simply a distraction or worse, that it's some politicised idea that is a left-wing issue that will waste tax dollars is going to prevail. The reality is that if your main concern is economic growth, renewables, energy efficiency, electric vehicles, these are going to be the growth industries in the next few years where the efficiency and the innovation is happening Throwing away your lead in these things out of some adherence to a culture war from decades ago, it's, it's mad. And it's something that I think some governments have already done way too much of, frankly. I mean, again, looking at countries like the US, there's been a choice made to prop up an unprofitable shale gas industry as a way of getting energy independence. Even oil industry analysts suggest that this is the case, that this industry is not profitable without very, very high prices of oil. One of the things I make a point of doing is reading very widely. I have some sources I check in on that I know I'll disagree with, people who hold political views that are different from mine. One such blog has reliably published energy industry analysis about what they describe as the shortcomings of renewables and the continued need for fossil fuels. For for 10 years, they've been publishing this anti-renewable stuff, basically. And even this blog, that is generally extremely pro-fossil fuels, had to concede that quote. Since drilling and producing from shale is expensive, it is dependent upon high price to succeed. But overproduction of oil has led to the price collapse, starving the shale drilling industry of cash flow and ability to borrow, leading to widespread bankruptcy. Informed commentators like Art Berman and Rune Lickfern have long maintained that the shale industry has never turned a profit and has survived via a rising mountain of never-ending debt. Economists will argue, however, that improved technology and efficiency will reduce costs and make shale competitive with other sources of oil and energy. We shall see. End quote. Now that quote came from 2015. Five years later, has the picture changed? No. This is from oilprice.com, a website that you may be surprised to learn is all about the price of oil. It says, quote, Despite the hype of lower break-even prices, and despite the hype around longer laterals, energy digitalization, and other technological breakthroughs, most shale companies are still not profitable. In fact, roughly nine out of every ten shale companies in the US are burning cash, according to Brystad Energy. The Oslo-based consultancy studied 40 US shale companies and found that only four of them had positive cash flow in the first quarter of 2019. In fact, the number of companies with positive cash flow was lower than it was previously, and total cash flow from the group fell from $14 billion in the fourth quarter to just $9.9 billion in the first. The gap between capital expenditure and cash flow from operating activities has reached a staggering $5 billion. This implies tremendous overspend, the likes of which we've not seen since the third quarter of 2017, said Elisa Lukash, senior analyst on Reistad Energy's North American shale team. US shale drillers have historically loaded upon debt in order to continue to finance their cash burn, but investors have soured on the sector, finally waking up to the fact that shale drillers, by and large, are money losers. Investors are fed up and are leaving no room for undisciplined spending in 2019. End quote. And all of this is pre-COVID. The point being that increasingly, because of this reliance on unconventional reserve, shale drilling is not what we used to do, it's the more difficult to extract oil that we're having to try and extract now. The fossil fuel industry is increasingly unprofitable compared to the alternatives even before you price in the immense damage that burning these fossil fuels is doing to the environment. And the US is needlessly propping up this dying polluting industry. Who does this serve? 
It does no service at all to the workers who will still be out of a job in five years. They're throwing money into this black hole. It's created this massive debt-fueled bubble, which now that lenders aren't going to want to lend to an unprofitable project, is going to pop. And that does not do anything to advance US energy security. You might be saying, oh, well, we need the shale. We need this to go on because we won't have sufficient energy to keep the lights on. Well, you know, if you'd invested in the alternatives that were longer term, then you might have a chance to, to bridge that gap a little bit more. And when all this is happening, you have to look at what China is doing. China is cornering the world's markets on lithium, the fuel of the future. In the first half of 2019, China exported more solar panels than in the entirety of 2018. It's doubling in the space of a year. And this in the midst of a trade war in the US, which slapped such heavy tariffs on China's solar panels that only 0.1% of China's exports were to the US in terms of solar. In other words, China has one eye firmly on the markets of the future, albeit while still burning a hell of a lot of fossil fuels in the present. Obviously, China has its own issues with climate and its own issues with the governance structure that they have there that I'm not going to get into, but the point is that the people there have realised that the growth industries are going to be renewable batteries and they are cornering the market on this. And this, of course, does illustrate part of the issue with some of these green stimulus packages. Countries that have lagged behind in producing renewable energy are potentially going to struggle to find domestic industries that they can finance. And this may be a particular bar for the UK, given our pathological desire to cut off trading relations with most of the rest of the world and our eviscerated manufacturing sector. And let me say something. The US is not the only one who has made bad geopolitical decisions when it comes to energy security and policy in the future. One of the first wind turbines that was demonstrated, uh, one of the first wind turbine sites that was demonstrated was in the 1970s uh, in the UK, in Scotland. The UK government effectively decided that they didn't think wind was going to be that profitable. Uh, They banned onshore wind developments uh, at one point. Um, They didn't invest in the industry. They didn't put in the money for the lost leader. The Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, did invest in wind. Uh, And now they are exporting these uh, wind turbines to the rest of the world. Orsted is a huge wind turbine manufacturer. It's one of the biggest in the world. Um, I'm just looking this up. Their stock price has tripled in the last four years because effectively, given the subsidies that have been given to these companies, given the uh, ability of the... given the bet that has been taken on wind by these countries, they now have an export industry. They now have a domestic manufacturing industry. So often in the UK, we hear politicians talking about bringing back manufacturing in some vague way. And yet what they have failed to do is invest in the industries that have turned out to be the winners of this thing and that have gone into the future. And instead, we've lost out on that opportunity now. But even if you think that your domestic economy is not going to benefit from, say, deploying wind and solar because you'll have to import the panels. That's not true. It does create jobs domestically as well. Uh, In fact, renewable energy industry supports more jobs than the fossil fuel industry per megawatt of power that you generate. And even this should be no excuse when it comes to measures like energy efficiency, which principally can be done domestically. One thing that is noticeable for me about the short-term policy response to COVID-19 has been that the central banks have doubled down on an old policy that's been in place since the 2008 crisis, quantitative easing. Now, I'm actually further diversifying the stuff that we talk about on this show, and I'll be interviewing a couple of economists from social sciences in the coming weeks, where we'll discuss QE in more detail. So I don't want to tread on that 
conversation too much here, but I will briefly explain why I think this is relevant. In quantitative easing, the central banks, the Bank of England in the UK, the Fed in the US, the ECB in Europe, they essentially print money to buy government and corporate bonds from banks. If you go on the uh, Bank of England website, it used to be there, I checked, it's not there anymore. They had a, a little explainer which said, quantitative easing is not printing money. Instead, new money is created digitally. Well, that clears that up. Now, you have to understand there is a distinction here, because what they do is they take on debt from these corporations and from the government, and they exchange it for cash. So the governments, the corporations are selling their debt as bonds, and these are being bought by the central banks. Now, the idea here is to inject liquidity or cash into the markets so that the banks are keener to lend money, preventing a financial crisis where no one will lend to each other, which would send the entire stack of cards that is the global economy toppling to the ground. Because it all depends on this sequence of lending and leverage, uh, more money that actually exists is being lent out. Now, they would technically argue that these things count as a loan. Uh, we'll talk about that a bit more later. Now, a lot of people credit QE with averting an even worse crisis in 2008 than we had, and a complete collapse of the financial sector. And that may be true. may be true. But there are also plenty that would criticise it. One of the major criticisms has been that when central banks buy corporate bonds, the companies have focused on using money to buy back their own shares, rather than the intention, which was that they would use the money to lend it out to people and employ more people and go through on more investments. The result is that the money that's being injected into the economy that's being created by the central bank inflates assets and stock prices. And that's good for people who own stocks, but it's terrible for people who don't. And so QE is found to exacerbate inequality in society. Since stocks and assets are disproportionately owned by wealthy people, policies that inflate asset prices like this disproportionately benefit the wealthy. By the way, all of my money has been in the stock market over the last few years, what, what there is of it. So... QE has disproportionately benefited me compared to someone who kept their money in a high-interest bank account. I think the point to make here is that if this is being pursued as an economic policy, uh, you can't view it as being beyond the realm of politics if it has these redistributive effects. And if the central banks are helping to buy up government debt and keep the government solvent and keep the government working, then if their policy is exacerbating inequality and the government doesn't want to exacerbate inequality, then it has to do something to counteract that. Even the Bank of England, who have committed large amounts of QE previously, have admitted that the effects of this policy have not been progressive and that it has resulted in more wealth collecting at the top amongst those people who have assets. Yet despite this, central banks have embarked on greater QE programmes than ever before in response to the crisis. In the UK, the initial response to the 2009 crisis was to buy 200 billion of bonds. That was later boosted to 435 billion in light of Brexit. In March 2020, responding to COVID-19, 190 billion of bonds were bought. And as I was writing this episode, another 100 billion worth of bonds were announced, adding to the bank's balance sheet. The Federal Reserve in the US has bought approximately $3 trillion of bonds and assets in response to the coronavirus so far. Now, the argument is that this isn't really printing money and giving it to these companies so much as it is creating money as banks conventionally do when they create loans. This is the system of fractional reserve banking. You know, when they teach you in school that the bank is simply lending out money that you put into it, that's not true. They only have a certain fraction of that cash on hand and uh, they leverage it out by lending money based on that collateral in the sort of knowledge that uh, not everyone is going to ask for their money back at once. 
Of course, when they do, the system is in serious trouble, which is why we have policies like QE in the first place. Now, the argument that QE isn't printing money, this is sort of true in the sense that the central bank owns the bonds, which they can then theoretically sell back, and from which they draw a dividend. So it's not the same as giving people money, because you've bought and you've bought their debt off them and hold it as an asset. But in actual fact, since these central banks hardly ever decrease their balance sheets, the Fed's balance sheet has hardly ever gone down since the crisis of 2008, the Bank of England's balance sheet has hardly ever gone down since the crisis of 2008, it's the sort of loan that you don't need to pay back particularly stringently, I would say. I would like someone to loan me $3 trillion on these kind of generous terms. So this policy relates to things that we've talked about on this show in two ways. Firstly, we know that it's a policy that exacerbates inequality. And we've discussed in our series on technology, inequality and catastrophic risks, that I feel that all of the driving trends in society are pushing towards worsening inequality. And we've discussed some of the potential consequences of this. And I think it's very difficult to make an argument that a world with higher and higher levels of inequality is going to be a more and more stable world, where we have more and more dangerous technologies that can get into the hands of more and more people. It just seems like a recipe for disaster. If you want to argue against this, please feel free. I'm happy to take people's emails. You can contact us by the contact form at physicspodcast.com, especially when I get into political topics. I'm aware that people have different opinions, and I want to hear them, and I want to see what you have to say about it, but that's not going to stop me from expressing my opinion. Now, in light of that, in light of the risks that come from this increasing inequality, as well as the fact that, frankly, it's not a nice world to live in, the other disproportionate impacts of the COVID-19 crisis are also exacerbating inequality. We've seen how it's affected the poorest people the most who can't weather the storm, who have to continue to go into the jobs that they have as key workers a lot of the time. It's crucial that we ensure that these policies don't go unchallenged. And if, as its advocates would insist, all this QE is necessary to prevent an even worse collapse, then we need redistributive policies to cancel out its effects in disproportionately benefiting the wealthy. And the other way in which this QE relates to what we've been talking about is that actually the Bank of England has had to do an internal review into its bond holdings in terms of how they impact climate change. For the first time ever, this climate-related financial disclosure, which is something a lot of people have been pushing for for many years, that companies and corporations and central banks are going to have to disclose how their activities uh, relate to climate, and investors are going to have to know how their portfolios relate to climate change. And um, so the Bank of England has published this. So it's shown that imagine that every corporation and every government, every entity behaved in the same way as the bonds bought by the Bank of England does. If they all did that, then we would be on track for 3.5 degrees of warming by the end of the century. And that would blow through the Paris Agreement goals of 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees and head into, frankly, a really dangerous level of climate change. Now, the bank do attempt to defend themselves by pointing out that the broader economy is not on track to reach 2 degrees Celsius. And so if you invest in a widespread of different companies, you'll inevitably end up investing in companies that smash through the Paris Agreement because so few companies at the moment are actually acting in compliance with it. Now, this may be true, but it also feels like a bit of an excuse 
why not preferentially extend the loans, extend the buying of bonds to companies that are doing well, or make your bond buying contingent on promises to use part of that money to enact policies that will reduce emissions, rather than just doing the same old thing of buying back the stocks and inflating the asset prices and guarding the wealth of the wealthy. How can the central bank claim to be acting towards the Paris Agreement goals and being in compliance of this big treaty that's been signed by nations around the world when it's lending billions to prop up companies that will result with their current policies in three and a half degrees of warming? In short, looking at this whole situation, there are essentially central banks that are pumping vast amounts of money into the economy in a way that inflates assets disproportionately, that benefits the wealthy in society disproportionately, and has no regard, as far as we can tell, to the possible impacts in supporting polluting companies and industries that jeopardise the future for all of us. And yet we're also told that this policy can't be questioned at all because it's necessary for the survival of the economy. And this is barely debated. If you think about the endless discourse that we have at the moment about statues and so on, where all of this stuff is going on, and no one seems particularly concerned about things that have, frankly, a, a much bigger tangible impact on a lot of people's lives, I feel, anyway. We see bizarre goings-on where the stock market is totally divorced from the actual goings-on in the economy. It's climbing rapidly even as unemployment rises precipitously and every other sign in terms of consumer confidence and so on, is, is that we're headed for a major recession or depression. Now, the thing to understand about that is that the markets are all about the sentiment of the people who invest in them. And once you realise that, you have to wonder if many of them aren't just assuming that their interests are going to be protected, no matter what the cost is for the rest of us. Without wanting to belabor the point too much, this is the real tragedy of an economic depression, because there are going to be, unfortunately, millions of people who are out of work and who want to work, there is no shortage of useful work to be done, but because our world is optimised for certain things and not for achieving the most useful amounts of work that we can do, we may well end up with so much wasted potential at a time that is really crucial for the history of our species. And it's just another example of where trying to optimise for a single simplistic goal misses out on so much detail, creates so many perverse incentives, and leads to so many unintended and self-defeating consequences. In an earlier episode of this show on the psychology of existential risks, we republished it recently, we talked about the risks of millennialist thinking. This is an ideal that all that is required is for the existing system to be toppled and destroyed, and that destruction is almost an act of purification, and a new and better system will arise in its place out of the ashes of the previous one. This is certainly a tempting way to think a lot of the time. There's a reason why similar thinking has enraptured so many groups throughout history, from the evangelicals who believe in the rapture, to the Marxist revolutionaries who overthrew governments in the 20th century. And it's certainly true that periods of great upheaval can often lead to changes that are unimaginable in ordinary times. They create urgency, they shift the boundaries of what's normal, conceivable and possible. They loosen the grip of the old masters on legitimacy, power and authority. And the changes that result can be good and beneficial. But this simplistic picture misses out that it's not enough for something to simply send the old system crumbling to the ground. The hard work, the difficult, challenging, complicated, dangerous work, the landing that you have to stick, is creating the system that replaces the old one and ensuring that it's better. If we want this millennialist vision to be true, if we want there to be some silver lining from this crisis and for COVID-19 to be a turning point in human history in a good way, 
and indeed to be a catalyst for us to resolve some of the problems that we have been incapable or unwilling to deal with before, then our hard work starts now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. I hope you've enjoyed our coverage of the ongoing response to the coronavirus crisis. I think that it's, although it's outside the remit of the sort of things that we would normally talk about, I I can't sort of sit in good conscience and not talk about some of these things. So I hope that people don't mind. And of course, if you have a different opinion, I would love to hear it. You can contact us on the web at physicspodcast.com. There's the contact form there. I tend to respond to people. You know, I like to feature them on the show now if I can. Uh, we'll talk about those sort of things. There are other ways that you can support us. If you've enjoyed what we're doing, you can follow us on Twitter, Physics Pod. You can go to the Facebook page, Physical Attraction. You can send, of course, your comments, questions, concerns, new topics that you'd like us to cover, new stories that you think would be interesting for us to talk about, and, of course, uh, topics in science and technology that you think are important that we haven't covered yet send them all my way. People people, you'd like to hear us interview. I mean, I'm very willing to contact as many different people as possible and try to get them to come on the show. Um, it's interesting sometimes the, the kind of people you can get on. We've got a few more interviews lined up uh, coming and ready to go, so I hope you enjoy those as well. Of course, one good thing you can do to support us, of course, is to tell as many people who would like to listen to the show about it. Uh, there are other ways too. There's the PayPal, where you can do a one-off donation on our website if you want. And there's the Patreon, Uh, There's a new bonus episode that came up recently, which is our review of The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu. And there's a few more historical bonus episodes that you'll also get if you sign up there. The way that's set up, you don't pay, you you pay a few dollars for each bonus episode that's released, but you don't pay until an episode is released. So it's not like a subscription. Uh, I'm doing that obviously because I don't know how consistent I'm going to be able to be at putting out bonus episodes because of all the other stuff I've got to do. So it's just a sort of extra way of helping to support the show if you would like to. And yeah, you can review in all the usual places. I mean, you must listen to thousands of content creators saying all of the same stuff. So, you know, you know, you know what you can do. Um, But of course, the most important thing you can do is until next time, you know, take care of yourself, um, stay safe, and I will speak to you soon.